0: So I'm hoping over these uh, sessions we have together to speak to you on the biblical doctrine of man. What I want to do tonight is to, first of all, to read some scriptures to you, but uh, the way I want to go tonight is to summarize uh, the doctrine of man up to a certain point. I've been preaching on the doctrine of man for the last year. Uh, In Nairobi, I preach for an hour in... uh, Nairobi Cinema every Monday and every Thursday. If I'm in town, if I'm in Kenya, I get back to Nairobi every Monday, every Thursday and preach for an hour. For the last year, I've been uh, preaching on the Doctrine of Man and then in our various travels, I've been doing that as well. I did it with RT in uh, Johannesburg and Cape Town a few weeks ago and I'm still pursuing that. But uh, the way I want to do it tonight is, first of all, to try to, to summarize the doctrine of man up to a certain point, and then tomorrow and uh, Sunday I want to go a bit further. So that's, that's the procedure I'm following. Some of, some of these things that I've already done are, are available. If you're a high-tech guy, you can get them over various uh, downloads. Uh, my, my friend Charlie Lettenberger, Charlie, wave your hand, Charlie, who looks after my website in Germany, he... Tell you how to download other things that I've done on this subject. But let me read a few verses to you from various places. First of all, Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, if you have your Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man as our image. I think that's the right translation. I don't think it's in our image. I think it should be as our image. Let us make man as our image after the likeness, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own or as his own image, as the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. And then Hebrews chapter 8, which is Hebrews chapter 2 which is uh, meditating and reflecting on a psalm, still still thinking about the image of God and uh, picking up that theme later on in Scripture, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 6. It has been testified somewhere, actually it's Psalm 8, it has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him, or the son of man that you care for him? You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. But at present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels. We see him crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. And then going back to Romans, going back a bit, I want to read a verse or so from Romans. Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Yeah, Paul says, Just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death spread through sin, and so death spread to all men, because all sinned. And You'll notice if you have a Bible, at that point it just says a dash. And that's the translator's way of saying that Paul never finished the sentence. He started a sentence and he never finished it. He says... Uh, Sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all men sinned. And then he, he doesn't finish the sentence. And then Romans chapter 12, Romans chapter 12, and verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that you may prove and may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Well, I read those verses to you tonight because they are a kind of a selection of various scriptures that deal with the biblical doctrine of man, the teaching of, of the Bible concerning man. And uh, what I'm trying to do is to summarize the biblical teaching, to deal with the the doctrine or the theology, if you like, of man. It's a tricky thing to do to expound doctrine or teaching. I don't know whether you've ever asked yourself, if you're a preacher, I don't know if you've ever asked yourself how you should do it. Most of the time, I think we should not do it. I, I hold the view that pastors and preachers should not preach theology. Theology is not what we preach. Theology is, is the backbone of what we preach. It's behind the, the back somewhere. It's, it's, it's our framework. It's what we know we believe, and it's there in the back of our heads, in the back of, of, our, heads and back of our, our minds. But when you preach, you don't lecture theology. You take scriptures and you preach them, which is not the same as giving a theological lecture and you press it upon the hearts of people. You're not just addressing the mind. You are, you are you're addressing the conscience. Remember how Paul says he, he appeals to every man's conscience. He's addressing the conscience when he speaks. So on the whole, I don't think we should preach theology or, or doctrine or teaching. That's, that's more in the background. You may ask the question, does the New Testament have, have doctrine in it? Well, the answer is yes, but it's not theoretical doctrine. It's applied doctrine. It's somebody taking what they know and using it to deal with particular problems and pressing the implications upon you. It's, it's not pure teaching. It's applied teaching. It's something uh, that, that the Apostles will be saying to you using what they know. So on the whole, I don't think we should preach theology, but occasionally we should. It's something you do when you want to cover a, cover a lot of ground in a short space. As as I've said, I've uh, been preaching on the doctrine of man, text after text after text, for about a year now. But tonight, it's all got to go in one space. And uh, it's something you do when you want to cover a lot of ground. It's what the Apostle Paul meant when he talked about the whole counsel of God. Remember he said, uh, I haven't, I haven't uh, hidden anything. I've not been afraid to share unto you, to, to deliver unto you the whole counsel of God. He had an entire, the entire plan of salvation back in his head somewhere. And he spent hour after hour in, in Ephesus teaching the elders. So he does know what he believes. But the question is, how do you do it when, you, when you're preaching teaching, how do you do it? Well, I think the right way to do it is to do it as it were text at a time, scripture at a time. You, you, you preach scriptures, you preach on this verse and that verse and this verse, but you're still preaching. When, when you teach any kind of Christian doctrine, you should still be preaching. You, you shouldn't be simply lecturing. And uh, so it's a tricky thing to do, and I'm, I'm not sure I'm, uh, that I've learned how to do it. I'm still trying to learn how to do it. But uh, we do have to have uh, the kind of bottom line in our heads. We do need to know, what do we believe about God? What do we believe about the cross? What do we believe about the Holy Spirit? What do we believe about man? We do, we do need to know uh, the bottom line after all of our expounding and preaching and expounding Scripture. You do have to ask the question, well, what do I believe after all of this preaching of Scripture? Your theology is what you believe after expounding Scripture. When you preach on Matthew and Mark and Luke and John and Acts and Romans and Revelation and Genesis and Isaiah, what do you believe at the end of it all? That's your theology, that's, that's your doctrine, that's what you've come to believe. And uh, th- there's a case for doing this occasionally, I don't do it all the time, but there's a case for doing it, and I rather think that we need to do it uh, a lot at the moment. And I say that for this reason, I hold the opinion, I'm, I'm not going to go into it in detail, but I I hold the opinion that the theological colleges have have let us down. That the average modern theological college in no way trains preachers and pastors for their real work. Indeed, the lecturers are not pastors. It's people who are not pastors training pastors. People who are not preachers training preachers most of the time. People who are not doing something training people to do something that they are not doing, which is a bit of a peculiar thing if you think about it. And I hold the view that uh, that old way of doing things is of little value for new things that are happening in the church of Jesus Christ. And then, So that leads, leads to the question then, well, in that case, how should it be done? Well, what should, what should uh, replace that? If, if we can't completely trust the old style of an uh, academic institution, what, what, should, uh, what should be replacing it? And I answer, training churches churches where we preach the faith and we gather and we deal with these things not just in an academic way but, uh, but in a way that trains preachers and trains the people, which is one reason why I, I do things like this. I believe that uh, we do need it in our age more than ever because uh, the older methods of doing that have let us down and we have a generation who don't know what they believe. We have a, a generation of preachers who don't really know much about how to expound scripture. We have, we have uh, all sorts of uh, doctrines coming in, every, every wind and wave of doctrine, as, as the Apostle Paul said on one occasion. And we need more than ever to know what we believe about this and this and this. So that's the background to what I'm doing. And at the moment, as I, as I say, I'm focusing on the, the doctrine of man. So then, uh, what is the teaching? How do, how do we break it up? Well, I would say that the the biblical teaching falls into various uh, major sections. What you do when you're trying to grasp the the teaching of Scripture is you read everything you can in Scripture, you expound every book, and then you say, well, what do I believe about this? And you you break it up into its major sections and summarize what you have learned from the Scripture. Well, when we do that with the doctrine of man, I think it sort of breaks up into, into certain major sections. I would say... The first thing you learn as you're reading the scriptures has to do with the mystery of man. As I understand the scripture, the Bible teaches that nobody understands themselves unless God reveals the nature of man to them. People do not understand themselves even the leaders of our world, even the politicians and the psychologists and the educationalists and the, the aid organizations, the one thing they never really think about very much or ever consider is actually the nature of man himself. If, if you think about it, the various institutions that are designed to, to help man in our, our world are never dealing with man himself. They are always dealing with man's circumstances he needs education. He needs money. He mustn't be under a tyrannical regime. He needs democracy, uh, and so on. You, you know the things that are said. But, but they're never dealing with man himself. And uh, the result is that, that we're always, as it were, manipulating and trying to handle and remedy the various uh, problems that man has got. His, his lack of education, his need of money, poverty, hygiene, all these things that the world is very concerned about. But, uh, but you never deal. The, the world never deals with man himself. And according to the scriptures, the problem of man is not his circumstances. It's not his education. It's not his health or his hygiene or, or whether he's under a, a democratic regime or any other kind of regime. The problem of man, according to the Bible, is man himself. The heart of man, Jeremiah chapter 17, verse 9, the heart of man is deceitful above, above all things and desperately wicked. And then it adds this, this comment, who could know it? Who understands it? Whoever see, who, who does see, says Jeremiah, who sees the heart of man? Who sees the very nature of man himself? You see, you can take a, a poor sinner, by poor I mean financially poor, you can take a man in poverty and he is literally a poor sinner and, and you help him and you, you give some income generating activity and at the end of it all, what do you have? You have a sinner who's not quite as poor as he used to be. And maybe if you're really lucky, you have a rich sinner. But you've, you've only gone from a poor sinner to a rich sinner. You haven't, you haven't dealt with the man. Or you have someone who's not educated, and you, and you give him a scholarship or a grant, and he goes to school, or, or you, you get him through a university course. He's now, he's now a clever sinner. But you see, you haven't dealt with the nature of man himself. And this is the, the problem That. Troubles everybody. Well, I maintain this is one of the themes of Scripture. As you go through Scripture, you see one character after another. And the great mark of all of them is that they they never really understand themselves. And we could look, and uh, I've been doing it, We, we could look at various characters in the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar, walking around his temple, saying, look at this great kingdom that I made. God says, oh yes, oh yes, and he's made to be like an animal eating grass. He does not know himself. Pontius Pilate says to Jesus, don't you know, don't you know, I've got power to release you, I can kill you, I can crucify you, I can release you. Oh, says Jesus, really? You have no power except that which is given you from above. You see, Pontius Pilate doesn't, doesn't know who he is and where he is, and how he gets to be where he is. He's not going because of how clever he is. Actually, he wasn't a very clever person at all. His power is given him. He's, he's put in that position by God. And then... Romans chapter 7, that man who says, I don't even understand myself. The good that I want to do, I don't do. And what I don't want to do, that's what I do. Oh, wretched man that I am. He confesses, I don't even understand myself, he says. This is the whole teaching of Scripture, that we need a revelation to understand ourselves. And that's one of the greater sections, I would say, of the biblical doctrine of man. But then secondly, I would say another major theme in Scripture is, is the purpose of God for man, or, or what I might call the centrality of man. Man, humankind, is central in the purposes of God. And as soon as you start reading the Bible, you notice it straight away. Take Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The earth is void and without form. There are two deficiencies, two things that are lacking in the universe as it comes from the hand of God. It is without structure, it has got no form or shape to it, it's a kind of blob, it has no design to it in any kind of obvious way. It is without form, and it is void, it is empty. In other words, it has no inhabitant, there's nothing in it. It has got no structure, and it's got no content. And then Genesis 1, 3 goes on. Ah, but God, the Spirit of God is there. And God says, let there be light. And what you're having then, from Genesis chapter 1, verse 3, is you're having God shaping and designing the world. Having, having made the stuff, which is shapeless and formless and has not got any visible function to it, and con- contentless, nobody's there. <clears throat> having created stuff, which is without form and without content, God gives it form. And he designs it, he separates this, he makes the light, he he makes the ground, he puts the stars in the sky, he organizes time. He's designing our world and he's putting things in it. He's putting the sun to rule the sky, he's putting the fish in the sea, he's putting man on planet earth. He's remedying the two defects of Genesis 1-2. Genesis 1-3 onwards is remedying the two defects that are in Genesis 1-2. It was without design or shape, it had no content, so God gives it design. He gives it shape and he puts content into it. But as you you read the chapter, it's, it's surely perfectly obvious that everything is being designed for man. It's all all being made for man. The ground is there. Man is not a fish. He can't live live in something liquid. He has to have solid ground. The stars in the sky and the sun and the moon, they're put there for signs and for seasons. Whose signs and whose season? Who is it that, that wants, it, wants, to, wants to mark out seasons of time and, and things to be signified, the compass points and the direction of, 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 the, of, of the north and the south and the east and the west? Who is it that needs signs and seasons? It is man. Nobody else is going to be looking at the stars. It's man this is being made for. And when everything is all over, when everything is perfectly prepared, as it were, the very last thing that God does is he brings man along. And if you read the the passage, you'll notice how it, it slows down. When you get to Genesis chapter 1, verse 26, you'll notice that the narrative slows down. And the story is being told to you in greater detail. And you discover that God takes counsel with himself. God says, let us make man. He's discussing things with himself. He's never done that before. God didn't say, let us create the light, or let us create the fish in the sea. There was no special discussion or counsel within the being of God that that is mentioned in connection with anything else. It's only when you come to man that it slows down. Of course, I I take it for granted that you know, when I say man, I mean man and woman, You, you know that I'm sure, the human race. It's only when it's dealing with the human race. The narrative slows down and there's this special kind of council. God is discussing things with himself. This is the greatest thing he's ever doing. This is the climax of everything. This is what everything has been leading to. There's nothing beyond it. There's nothing that comes into being beyond man. This is the climax of the story of creation. And then we're told that mankind is made as the image of God. And I emphasize that the the Hebrew word there does mean as. It's it's the word in, but uh, very often in the Hebrew word that's commonly translated in, very often it really means as. I I could give you many examples of that. You remember in Genesis, in Exodus chapter 6, when God comes to Moses and Moses says, "What what does your name mean? And God says to Moses, well, from now, from before, hitherto, I have appeared to you as... Eil Shaddai. But now I'm going to appear to you as Yahweh, as I am that I am. I'm now going to display to you the meaning of my name. I am. When you see me redeeming by the blood of the Lamb, that's the meaning of my name. When you see me taking a people to myself, sovereignly stepping into their lives, delivering them from slavery, that's who I am. I'm appearing to you as I am. This this is what I am in the very depths of my nature. But, But I'm drawing your attention to that word as. I have appealed to you as El Shaddai, the God who comes down to rescue the helpless. Now I'm appearing to you as Yahweh, or the the phrase I am, that I am. The word in often means as, and it surely is what it means here. God is making man to be his image. He's coming and creating man as his image in this world. But what does it mean? Well, remember the background. Remember, when, when you're reading your Bible, you should always remember the background. You should always remember uh, the situation that the writers are writing into. What God was saying then is what God is saying now. So you believe with, you begin with what God was saying then. And then you say, when, you, when you know that, you then say, well, now I know what God's saying now. What did it mean in the ancient world to, to, to be making an image? Well, in the ancient world, you'd have all these temples. And uh, every God had his temple, his holy building, and there, in the doorway of the temple, there would always be some image. there would be a crocodile if it was Egypt, if it was the Egyptian religion, there would be, there'd be a statue of the king, if maybe they worshipped the king. The, the, the gods would be represented in the doorway of the temple. you'd come into this temple, there would be an image representing the, the, the god whose temple it was. So when the Bible says, "I am making man, men and women as my image." It is as if the whole universe is a kind of temple. The entire universe is a dwelling place of God. God is everywhere. The whole universe is his temple. But in his temple, he puts something to represent him. He puts an image. He puts a kind of replica of himself in this, this world. And, what, and what, he, what he brings into being to be his image, what he creates as his image here in this world, is, is man. One reason why we are told in, in the Ten Commandments, Israel was told in the Ten Commandments, you should not make any, any graven image. One reason why they were not to make an image is because they were to be the image. They, they were to represent God themselves. They were not meant to make some statue or picture or idol and worship a thing trying to represent God. They were the people who were to represent God. They are God's image. And God creates man as his representative and agent and uh, and delegate here in this world. And so I think it really means three things. I'm just summarizing tonight. I could spend and have spent many, many months on these things. I'm just summarizing. But uh, it really means, I think, three things. I would say it means, first of all, being, what man is in himself. He is not an animal or he's not only an animal. He has things like mind and conscience and reason, intelligence, purpose. He can plan for the future. He has personality. He's he in a way that is not true quite of any animal. He has creativity just, just as God created man can create. He has ability to contemplate the future. It, it, the, the being of man is, is so much which is beyond anything which you can find in an animal. The image of God is that which separates man from the the animals. The animals were not made in the image of God, nor were the angels. The Bible never says an angel is is made as the image of God. It is that which separates him and makes him unique, especially about the, the, the angels. It's the ability to communicate, the ability to have fellowship. In all these ways, God has made a kind of replica of himself. When you look at God, you see God designing, shaping, planning, preparing for the future. All of that finds its equivalent in in men and women. Man's being, man's nature, is a kind of replica of much that you find in God. But then secondly, I would say that the image of God is man's original, righteous character. Man was made, Adam was made in holiness and righteousness. Remember how the New Testament says that when we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, we are recreated in the image. We go back to the to being the image of God again. And places like Ephesians and uh, Colossians, they they put it this way, they say we are recreated. We're to go back to the image of God. Ephesians chapter four, verse 24, be renewed in the spirit of your mind and put on the new man, put on the new person that you're made to be. You're being renewed, you're being taken back to where you you were originally designed for and put on the new self created after the likeness of God, after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. This image of God included righteousness and holiness. Man was created sinless. Man was Created to love God, and for a little while he did. A short period, however long it was. He was made in true righteousness and holiness. So it's being, it is righteousness of character. But then it's something else, it's also function. Man is to function as the image of God, as the representative and agent of God in this world. Look how it's put. Let us make man in our image and let them have dominion. Let them have lordship. Let them reign over everything that I've put in this world, that I've made for them. Let them subdue everything, the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, and every living thing that moves on the earth, the three three realms of our universe. Our universe has three realms, what's up there in the sky and out there somewhere, what's down there in the sea, below the earth, and the earth. Above the earth, the earth, and below the earth. These are the three realms that God has put in our our universe, that constitutes our universe. And man is put over the whole lot. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, those are things lower than the earth. Over the birds of the heavens, things up there in the sky somewhere. And over everything upon the earth, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. The three realms that constitute our universe, man is made the Lord of them all. Though I ought to say that you must remember this. You must remember that in the Bible, king, the kings and shepherds are the same people. Kingship and being a shepherd is the same thing in the Bible. Have you ever noticed that? Uh, when, when you have in the Bible the shepherds of Israel... It means the kings. It means the line of of kings from King David. When you read about pastors, and it says pastors should rule well. Notice that combination. Pastors rule. There's kingship and, and, and the work of a shepherd is put there together. And the first king, you remember, was a shepherd. God trained David to look after wandering sheep with all of their problems. They had to rescue them here and rescue them there. God trained David as a shepherd, and he made him the shepherd of Israel. As I like to say, he didn't change his job, he only changed his congregation. He was no longer looking after sheep in the bush, but he was looking after people who have the same sort of characteristics. All oh, we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. David was looking after those people. He was the first shepherd of Israel. There's no difference in the Bible between being a shepherd and being a king. And uh, when you think of men and women having dominion over our world, you must remember that. It's not tyranny. It's not, it's not domineering over our universe. It's not exploiting our universe. It is shepherding our universe. It is caring for it. It is making sure it doesn't get damaged. It is bringing out the best of it. It is looking after our world. It's not, domi- it's not dominion in an exploitive manner. So God gives man this Function and there's a lot in the Bible about that, and all I'm doing is is summarizing it. Psalm Psalm eight has to deal with it, and various other scriptures. But let me hurry on. The, the third The third main topic of the scriptures, as you read the scriptures and you read Romans and Hebrews and Psalms and Genesis, and you read all of these scriptures, surely the third area of teaching that stands out is that man fell from this position, and so the third major topic that I suggest that you look for and you attend to is the fall of man. That although man was designed to be the shepherd and the king of this universe, it involved his being lord of himself. Amongst other things, he had to rule over himself. He had to be able to control himself and and relate to God himself. And uh, you can't can't rule over anything else if you can't rule over yourself. You can't have dominion over anything else if you can't have dominion over over yourself. You can't be a shepherd of anything else if you're not a shepherd of yourself. If you can't attend to yourself, how how can you attend to anything else? And the great tragedy of the human race is that men and women fell. And so the Bible talks about the way in which Adam sinned. And we could look at that in its details. The great passage of Scripture that deals with it is Romans chapter 5. I just read you one verse of it. Romans chapter 5 says that Adam sinned. And it says that just as sin came into the world through one man, it was one man's sin that brought calamity into our world. And death came through sin. And so death spread to all men because all people sinned. And as I say, at that point, Paul doesn't finish his sentence. He never goes on at that point to finish his sentence. He does finish it in verse 18. Eventually, he finishes it. But for the moment, he doesn't finish his sentence. Why doesn't he finish his sentence? Well, because there's something that needs explaining before he can carry on saying what he wants to say there's something that needs explaining. He's just said that everything came into the world because one man sinned, everything came into the world because, because, one, because one man sinned and all sinned. What does he mean, all sinned? Wasn't everybody who sinned? It was Adam who sinned. What does he mean by saying, all sinned? At the end of verse 12. Well, he needs to, to explain that. And so he does. In verses 13 and 14, he explains what he means by saying, all sinned. And he says, well, sin was in the world before the law was given. There was sin even when there was no law. But uh, sin is not counted when there's no law. If if God doesn't tell you not to do something, well, well, you're not breaking a law if you do it. How can you be breaking a law if there is no law? Adam had a law. God gave him one sentence. It it was a one-sentence law. God said to Adam, don't eat of this tree. He had a one-sentence law. And he transgressed, he, he, he walked over, he crossed the line, he transgressed that one-sentence law. And he died, as God said. But what about the rest of the human race? They, they didn't transgress the law in the Garden of Eden. And the law of Moses had not yet been given. So why did they die? If they did not commit, commit the sin of Adam, literally breaking one law in that Garden of Eden themselves... And if, they, if the law of Moses had not been forgiven, not not been given, then why did they die? And Paul's answer is: they died because they were in Adam. That Adam's sin was their sin; they were there. Adam was representing them, and so Paul says, "Well, this is why all die. Sin was in the world, but it's not being counted. But sin is not counted where there is n- not any law." Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was the type of the one who succumbed. Just as, just as when Jesus came, Jesus dies upon a cross on behalf of us all, so when Adam was in the Garden of Eden, he was there on behalf of us all. He was there on our behalf. He was there as our representative. We were there in him. We were in Adam as Adam sinned. He was our, our representative. He was the great-great-granddaddy of the human race. He represented the entire human race. And our humanity was being judged in Adam when Adam was in the Garden of Eden. And, Ad, and our humanity failed. It's a bit like the way we talk when we send an ambassador somewhere. Maybe maybe you were... Uh, send an ambassador to America, and you send David Cameron to uh, discuss Libya, maybe, with the American president, and you say, Britain and America are discussing what to do, and Britain is now negotiating with America what to do with with the state in in Libya. Really? I mean, does that mean every Englishman all all crosses the Atlantic and, and goes to see... But Mr. Bayrack, why do we say England is, is discussing this with America? Well, what we mean is that our representative has gone there. The head of, of the nation has gone there. The political leader has gone there. And, and in him, the whole nation is, is doing some discussing with, with that, that power. We, we use the word of, of ambassadors and representatives. We say, well, America is discussing this with Japan, or, or this nation is discussing with that. We don't mean the whole nation has gone to the, to the other country. We just mean that our ambassador, our representative is there. And that's the way it is in the Bible. The human race was in the Garden of Eden in the person of its representative. You might say to me, "Well, that's not fair. You know, you know, I, I didn't choose Adam." And I answer, "You could not have got a better representative than Adam. You could have done no better." He was sinless, he had come directly from the hand of God, he had he was he was created in righteousness and holiness and purity. You could not have got a better representative than Adam. If Adam fails, then you will fail. If Adam falls, then you will fall, because you're no stronger than Adam. If Adam can't stand up to Satan, you can't stand up to Satan. And so your humanity, your nature, your being, you are being judged by that one person representing you. And that's the teaching. It's not my idea, it's, it's Paul's idea. He's the one that says it, not me. I'm just telling you what he said. The whole human race was there in the Garden of Eden. In Adam, says the Bible, in Adam, all die. But if you've got any protest, there's another answer that you ought to remember. The way in which you fell is also the way you come back. The way in which the human race fell into sin is also the same method by which the human race is saved from sin. Jesus is another representative. Jesus is another Adam, and he too represents you, only he's not representing you to bring you down, he's representing you to bring you up. And just as Adam was in the Garden of Eden for you, Jesus was on the cross for you which is what Paul means when he says, who is a type of the one who's to come? He's following the same pattern. What had happened in the case of Adam is the same thing that, happened, that happens in the case of Jesus. Just as Adam was there for you in the Garden of Eden, so Jesus was there for you upon the cross, and, and he's there for everybody who puts faith in him. And there's, some, there's something's even better. What Jesus does for you is bigger than what Adam did for you. And Paul will go on to say, in verse, in verse uh, 15, he'll go on to say, but the free gift is not like the transgression. What, what God gives you in Jesus, it's not completely balancing what Adam did for you, because what Jesus does is bigger. What Jesus does is bigger. When you put your faith in Jesus, not only do you get back into the Garden of Eden, so to speak, you actually get more, you actually get more than Adam had. Oh, there was an old hymn that put it. Do uh, you know the old hymn, Jesus shall reign, where'er the sun doth his successive journeys run, his kingdom stretch from shore to shore, till moon shall wax and wane no more. Maybe we don't sing these old hymns anymore. You have to be old-fashioned to even know them. Don't you know he went, he went on to say, death and the curse, they are no more. In him the tribes of Adam boast, More blessings than their father lost. you ever know that verse? In him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. When you put your faith in Jesus, you don't just get back what Adam lost. You get more back. You not only get back what Adam lost, you get back what Adam was going to if he had obeyed God. You get back more blessing. You get crowned with glory and honor. Adam never got that. You get back more in Jesus than you lost in Adam. That's the teaching I... Can't go through every line of verses uh, 15 to 17. You can do it when you get home. In 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 the Lord Jesus Christ, we get back more than Adam lost. The free gift is not like the transgression. The free gift is bigger than the transgression. That's the teaching that God deals with the human race in terms of representatives, in terms of heads of the human race. There's only two of them: Adam and Jesus. Adam was there and our humanity fell. Our humanity could not stand up to Satan. Satan was cleverer than the human race, dragged the human race down, and so dragged us down. Death and sin and calamity and, and all the rest of it came into our world through Adam. But, but there's a free gift, and the same, the same way of in which we fell, is the way in which we come back. We come back through somebody who's done something for us. Someone who's done something on our behalf. Someone who's not just sinned for us. Adam sinned for us. Jesus hasn't hasn't sinned for us. Jesus has lived for us. Jesus has died for us. The Bible even says Jesus has believed for us. He's got a perfect life. He's a perfect sin bearer. He's even got perfect faith. And we put our faith in one who does everything for us. And in him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. And so that's the teaching, and and we could uh, work it out at great lengths. I'm not going to try to do very much along those lines, but we could do so, and I'm trying to do so. All the things that uh, sin brought into the world, alienation, separation from God, the ruination of our planet, even our planet was ruined by... The sin of Adam, that God said to Adam, "Cursed is the ground because of you. Pain and suffering, in pain you shall bring forth children, quarreling and squabbling and arguing. In the next chapter, Cain kills Abel. In in the very same chapter, Adam says to Eve, says to God, the woman that you gave to me, she gave me of the tree and I did eat. this quarrelsomeness and savagery and murderous spirit came into the world, says the Bible. Death came into the world. Genesis chapter 5 keeps on saying, and he died, and he died, and he died, and he died. You read that chapter, person after person after person, born, and it says of each one, and he died, and he died, and he died. Death reigns in our world. Nobody can hold up the process of dying. Death comes into the world. Vulnerability to Satan came into our world. There's that mysterious passage, I won't try to preach on it, but... uh, that passage in Genesis chapter 6, the sons of God coming down and taking the daughters of men. It has something to do with the demonic coming into our world. It's mentioned in 1 Peter and 2 Peter and Jude. And then people have asked, what is the essence of sin? What what is the very heart of sin? Well, we could look at that. Is it pride? People like uh, Thomas Aquinas and uh, the great Augustine said, the heart of sin is pride. so proud of ourselves. We're so defensive of ourselves. Or is it selfishness? Sometimes people have said the the very part of a sin is self. We are so preoccupied with ourselves. We're so touchy about ourselves. Or is it covetousness? Is it that we are wanting things that we ought not to have? The last uh, of the Ten Commandments is you should not covet. And Paul said, I wouldn't have known about sin. I wouldn't have had any experience of sin if the law had not said you shall not covet. It was that it was that particular law that got him. When he started not even wanting to not even to want sin, at that point the law condemned him. He couldn't stop wanting things that he shouldn't be wanting. Is the essence of sin covetousness? Is the essence of sin unbelief? People like Luther and Calvin would say the very heart of sin is unbelief. What's the very essence of sin? Well, I answer, you don't have to answer those questions because they're all the same thing. They're all the same thing. The reason why we're selfish is because we're proud. The reason why we want this is because of our desire for ourselves. The reason why we're unbelieving is we trust in ourselves and we don't trust God. It's all the same thing. It comes out as unbelief and pride and self-centeredness and covetousness. It grips the nature, the heart of man. This is the trouble, you see. Our problem is not just things we do, it's what we are. It is the heart of man. And you can't, you can't live a godly life unless your very nature is changed. You must be born again. It's not simply doing a few things. It's not simply adding a bit of religion or, or becoming a little bit more moral than you used to be. No, no, you must be born again. You must have a new nature. The heart of stone must be taken away. The heart of flesh must be given you. A new heart must be given you. It's the very nature of man. Remember how David committed that sin with Uriah and Bathsheba and uh, ruins the nation of Israel by letting the armies fall into calamity and he has to go to God and he says, oh, in, in sin did my mother conceive me. Even at the moment of, moment of conception, it was taking place in an atmosphere of wickedness and sinfulness. In sin did my mother conceive me. You desire, you desire purity in the inward heart. He's dealing, you see, with his house and his nature. It's not just that he sinned, and no, he's done, so, and it's not just that he's done something against against other people. He's done something against God, against you, and you only have I sinned and that that done that which is evil in your sight. His very nature has fallen. This is the problem of man. Well, we could explore all those things. We could look at particular kinds of sin. The unforgivable sin. The unforgivable sin is not believing in the gospel. And the only reason why it's unforgivable is because the gospel is the means of forgiveness. If you won't believe in the means of forgiveness, then it's not forgivable. That's the only reason why it's not forgivable. It's rejecting Jesus when the power of God is there. And then we could look at sins which are more serious than others. Jesus can say, it'll be more tolerable for for, for, for Tyre and Sidon than it is for you in Capernaum. How much you know affects how serious sin is. The more you know, the more serious is sin. There's such a thing as sins of ignorance. The times of ignorance God has overlooked. There's such a thing as committing sin with a high hand, as as the Old Testament puts it, if we sin willfully, says Hebrews chapter 10. There are different kinds of sin. And then we could look at the the punishment of sin. God's first way of punishing sin is to leave it alone. The worst thing that God can ever do for you, the worst way that God can ever punish your sins is, is to let you do what you want, is to hand you over is to hand you over to your sin. Remember how in Romans chapter 1, three times, Paul says, God gave them up, God gave them up, God gave them up. The worst thing God can ever do when you're wanting to sin is for God to let you do what you want. The best thing God can ever do is when he steps into your life and stops you. That's God's mercy, that's God's kindness. When When you're not allowed to go the way that you were going, it's God's kindness to you. And then we could look at earthly Chastening. The Bible has a lot to do with earthly chastening. We could look at this in terms of nations. God chastises whole nations. Sometimes whole nations go into war in the Bible. Whenever a nation sins, some war begins to break out. Its, it's the whole economy is ruined. We could look at God's ways of chastening nations. When you won't listen to God's word, when you won't respond to what God says, <coughs> He can make bare his mighty arm in punishing as well as in saving. And remember how Hebrews says, it is a fearful thing. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Well, there are these various uh, aspects of the Bible's teaching. All I'm doing is giving you a kind of list of uh, different ways in which the scripture draws our attention to, to the truth. But then let me move on to the next thing. There is such a thing, and I, and I want to try to deal with it in, in the next two days. I'll introduce it now, but I want to carry on with it tomorrow and the day after. In the Bible, you find what I call the aspects of man. And what I'm uh, thinking of when I use that phrase is I'm thinking of words like body and soul and spirit and flesh and heart and conscience and mind, these words for different aspects of man, or what the Bible will call the inner man and the outer man. Remember, Paul can say, our outer man is decaying, but the inner man is being renewed. Or Paul can say, be renewed in the spirit of your mind. Well, what is the spirit of your mind? These, these phrases that you have in the Bible that, uh, that pinpoint what I call different aspects of man. And uh, there's been a lot of controversy about it over, over the course of the years. Theologians and uh, biblical scholars and people that teach Christian doctrine have quarreled about it a lot. If you know anything about the story of theology, you'll know, you'll know of how much people have quarreled over whether man consists of two parts or three parts. Are you, are you aware of that kind of controversy among the, among the scholars and the theologians? There are people who, who hold very strongly that man is body and soul, and that's it. There's a material part to man, and there's an immaterial part of man. Man is body and soul, and there are theologians who make a big thing of that. I was reading a few of them over the last few days. Jim Tumanite, like Jim Packer, the Anglican theologian, he's very dogmatic that man consists of body and soul, nothing else same thing in the reformed tradition you'll find the same thing in the teaching of people like charles hodge the famous theologian of princeton back in the 19th century dichotomy as they call it that man divides into two and then there are those who are very dogmatic that man divides into three and their their favorite verse is, uh, is 1 Thessalonians 5:23 where paul is praying that we might be sanctified and kept got to be holy in spirit, and in soul, and in body. And they they love that verse. There you are. They say, man's got three bits to him. man. Man is to be holy in spirit, and in soul, and in body. So there's three parts there, body, soul, and spirit. And uh, over the years, theologians have really uh, quarreled and argued about this a lot. Well, let me make some comments. I'll try to to, to preach on it again tomorrow. I'll be preaching on the body, and I think I'll be preaching on the mind. We'll, We'll see how we go. But let me just say a few things about it tonight in these last few minutes. The first thing I would say is that most of the time, the Bible is not emphasizing the, uh, the different aspects of, of man. Most of the time, the Bible is emphasizing that man is one. There's nowhere in the Bible where we are a kind of collection of bits. And I, I don't think we should use the term pieces. You'll notice I'm not using the word pieces. You, you may say, how many bits are there in man? I'm not using that terminology. You'll notice I'm using the word aspects. You look at man from this angle and this angle and this angle. They're not bits and pieces. They are, they are angles at which you look at things. They are aspects. They are lines of approach, so to speak. But most of the time, the Bible's not uh, discussing the bits and pieces or the different angles at which you look at man. Most of the time, the Bible's looking at the, the unity of man. There is God made man. God, God, God looks at person by person as, as a totality, as a wholeness, and any kind of aspects that there are in man, they all they all affect each other. And uh, so, I, so I want to begin by saying, man is one. You may say, is man one or two or three or four or five or how, how many bits in man? Well, I begin by saying, man is one. Man is a unit. <laughs> And this is very important. You may say, is this just a bit of obscure theology? No, it's not. It's very important because every aspect of man involves every other aspect of man. Everything that there is in man affects everything else. And uh, you, you need to know this. You, you, can't, you can't, as it were, separate yourself. You may, be, you may be a very prayerful person. But one day you catch a cold or you're running a temperature and, and, and you're really feeling under the weather, as we say. Uh, especially in Britain, but uh, you, you really are sort of struggling with some physical problem and you find as, as you're trying to pray, you're not really praying very well, your, your body is affecting your relationship with God. Or you remember the great story, the great story in the Bible in this connection is the story of Elijah. You remember the time when Elijah had been doing so much, he'd been, he'd been dealing with the prophets of Baal, he'd been running here and there, he'd been uh, speaking to, to, the, to these false prophets and turning the... bakes on hot stones, a nice warm cake. And he feeds Elijah with a cake. And he gives him a jar of water. And he ate and he drank. And then he lay down again. He went back to sleep again. And he goes to sleep again. And the angel comes a second time. And he touches him. He says, hey, wake up and he touches him. And once again he says, get up and eat. Get up. I want to give you some more food. He's given food. He's given a second helping. He's told to sleep. And then he comes to a cave and the Lord came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And the story goes on. But you see, Abraham, uh, Elijah needed physical help. There, there is a connection between every aspect of the human person. I I sometimes tell the story of a time many years ago, back in the 1960s, when I had a lot of problems, mainly to do with the Church of England, I was an Anglican, and I wasn't quite sure what I thought about state churches and Anglican prayer books and all these things. And I went to see Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. I wanted to talk to him about uh, denominations and churches. So I went to see him in Westminster Chapel, I met him in his vestry, and I uh, got there one afternoon, and he looked at me, and I began to try to share my problems with him. And he said to me, can you take a holiday? And I said, "Yeah, but but you know, I wasn't come to talk about holidays or anything sort of physical. I, you know, I want to know about bishops, bishops and clergy, and prayer books and state churches. Yeah, can you take a holiday? Well, well, yeah, I suppose so." And he he would not let me talk theology with him. He kept on saying, well, "Can you can you take a holiday?" And finally, I said, "Yeah, all right then." And uh, in those days, in my younger days, I used to love. Seton on the Devonshire coast you know where Seton is on the Devonshire coast I got some train and went off to Seton for a day and, and just walked the hills of the cliffs between Seaton and Lyme and uh, the Living Psalms had just been published and uh, I just took a few days holiday and uh, read the Living Psalms and as I did that all of my answers came to me I never went back to Lloyd-Jones, I never needed to all of the questions I was asking, I got my answers. You see, Lloyd-Jones could see my problem was not spiritual, nor was it theological. I had enough ability to work it out for myself. My problem was I was exhausted. The only question he would ask me is, can you take a holiday? Can you take a holiday? Well, go and take a holiday. Then come back and see me afterwards. I never did go back. I never needed to go back. The problem was physical. And if you're a pastor, you often have that. You have someone come to see you, and you can see they're exhausted. I remember a, a nurse coming to see me in Nairobi. She was, she was working in a hospital where there was no doctor. She was really running the entire hospital on her own. She came to see me one day. Pastor, I think I'm backsliding. I said to her, do you have a swimming costume? She said to me, no. I said, I'm going to buy you one. <laughs> and I've Book, I've booked you into the swimming pool at the Serena Hotel. I want you to stay there all day by that pool and do nothing. That lady, every time she ever came to Nairobi for the next 10 years, she came back to see me and said, you saved my life, you rescued me, you wanted all my problems. You see, if you are a nurse and you're, staying, you're, you're getting no sleep and you're running the entire hospital and there's no doctor there, you're going to have spiritual problems. It's nothing to do with your spirituality, it's not because you're not praying enough and not reading your Bible. If you run yourself into the ground, you will have spiritual problems. Man is one. You need to, your mind to be healthy. You need your body to be healthy. You need your conscience to be healthy. You need every part, every aspect of your being to be healthy in God. And if you, if you neglect any one part, the whole will suffer. You, you neglect your body, you'll be having problems with your prayer time. You neglect your prayer time, you, it might even appear in your body. You have a guilty conscience. You start sinning and, and you won't listen when God's trying to say something to you. It may even come out physically. Remember Psalm 32, how David won't confess some particular sin. When I kept silent, he he won't confess to God, when I kept silent, my bones wasted away. When he refuses to deal with his sinfulness, he finds it even affects him physically. When I kept silent in this particular matter about which you were speaking to me, my bones faded away. Through my groaning all day long, your hand was upon me, my strength was dried up. You see, David had physical problems, because he was not dealing with something that was spiritual. Well, I end there tonight, I must stop. The Bible often treats us as one. Most of the time it treats us as one. And every aspect of ourselves affects every other aspect of ourselves. Sometimes it affects, it talks to us as though we are two. You. Mortify the deeds of the body. It's as though there's you and your body, and one person is dealing with the other person. You, one bit of you, is dealing with another bit of you. It talks of you as if you were two. Sometimes it talks to you as if you're three. Keep, keep, care, keep care of your spirit and your soul and your body. Sometimes it talks to you as if you're four. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul, and mind, and strength. He's talking to you as as if you're four. And if you put the whole lot together, you're about 20. Conscience and all sorts of things. These different aspects of man. What I want to try to say to you, I'll carry on tomorrow and the next day, is you need to care for every aspect. You need to know what to do with your body. You need to know how to present your bodies A living sacrifice to get to know the will of God, how good it is, how acceptable it is, how perfect it is. You need to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You need to have a soft conscience. Guard the heart, says a verse in the Proverbs, because out of the heart flow all of the issues of life. Every aspect of yourself you have to be able to care for. This is part of the teaching concerning man, and we will come back to it in the next couple of days. Let's stand and let's pray together. Our Father, we come to you in the name of Jesus. We thank you that you are so good to us. You love us. In Adam all die, but in Christ all are made alive. Thank you, Lord Jesus Christ, that you undid what Adam brought upon us, that you came and you rescued us. In, in him the tribes of Adam boast more blessings than their father lost. I pray that as we think about these things, you'll enlarge our minds, you'll teach us. Especially I pray that we may learn how to handle ourselves, how to care for ourselves, how to shepherd ourselves, how to look after our bodies and uh, our minds and our conscience, everything that's in us, that, that all that is within us might praise your holy name us to do it and to know how to do it. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. God bless you. Praise God.